Well, good morning. It's good to be back here again and to share God's Word with you. Um, been praying a lot for today's sermon and also for you, that you would be blessed by it. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and pray really quick, and then we'll look at Ephesians. Well, Father, we come before you with boldness and access into your presence, into your glory, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what he's done, Lord, and we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God, according to the riches of your glory. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, after a lot of prayer and study, I felt really constrained by the Spirit to preach on what, I'm, what I am convinced is the ultimate purpose of Paul's prayer. And I wanted to review what we studied during part one in more depth, but we don't have time to go over all of it. However, you may go online to review it at your leisure. Even though we don't have time to review all of part one in depth, you will still be able to understand what's being said today. During part one, we studied the reason why Paul prayed in Ephesians. So if you want to get a head start, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians one. And we looked at the reason why Paul prayed for the Ephesians. We studied why Paul prayed for the Ephesians during part one. And we learned that he prayed for them because of the glory contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we saw that the phrase, for this reason, in chapter one, verse 15, pointed back to what he said in chapter one, three to 14, where Paul blesses the triune God for what he has done in the gospel. Therefore, Paul prayed for that reason. He prayed because of what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we will study what he asked for in prayer for the Ephesians. So last week we studied why he prayed. Today we're going to study what he prayed for the Ephesians. There are two specific things that he asked for which are spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So two things, wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him through the Spirit. And He asked for them to fulfill, and He asked that for them to fulfill two purposes, which are that they would know what is the hope to which they were called, which is the same thing as saying what is a glorious inheritance in the saints. And two, He asked for the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. And after reading Ephesians repetitively and after consulting a few sources, I am convinced that the ultimate outcome that Paul wants to achieve through his praying is not found within his first prayer, which was what we are going to look at in depth And we are, but we're going to do that by looking at his second prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, because I think that's where the ultimate outcome of his prayer is, is in chapter 3. It's the outcome of all his praying for the Ephesians. The reason why I believe that his ultimate outcome for praying for the Ephesians is found in chapter 3 
is because of the phrase, for this reason, in chapter 315. So go ahead and take a look at it with me really quick. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, for this reason. I know that in the immediate context of 315, where he says, for this reason, is within chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. But the main idea of chapter 2, 11 through 22, is introduced in chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. Particularly where he asked, where he talked, where he talks about our inheritance being guaranteed by the Spirit. Furthermore, Paul, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, explains what God has done in Christ until he gets to his last prayer. Therefore, I am convinced that his last prayer, which is in chapter 3, 15 to 19, contains the ultimate outcome of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Before I get ahead of myself, let me introduce the topic now, and then I will gradually unpack the text and topic for today. So the topic is the power of God, the power of God. I have found it kind of providential today because our text in the Psalms was about the, the power of God in creation, and then our, we, had sang a, we sang a hymn about the power of God. And today we're going to look at the power of God in, Ephesians, in, in the book of Ephesians. So the topic is the power of God, and we want to see what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power, and we want to see why Paul wants us to know it. What purpose does it serve? In order to answer this question, let's review Ephesians 1.15, and and we will read until verse 19. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1.15. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1.15. And we're going to pray until verse 19. So in verse 15 he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That, here's the beginning of the prayer request, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now back to the question, what did Paul mean in chapter 119 when he said that he wanted the Ephesians to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? If you survey Ephesians, you will find more than several reasons, you will find more than several, several answers to this question. And if you look at the following verse, he says that his power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. There's a lot to explain there. There's a lot to explain to talk about. Uh, there's a lot to to, to unfold and explain about the resurrection and the ascension and coronation of Jesus Christ. But today we're going to look at something else. I want to make a beeline right now to the ultimate purpose of the reason why Paul wants to, them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power 
Because this, and I want you all to pay attention, this is the key to the motivation to pray. This is the key to the motivation to pray and for the rest of the Christian life. So you're not only getting a message today about the motivation to pray, but you're also getting a message today for all of your Christian life, for what God's will is at work, what God's will is at home for you, what God's will is in your marriage. This is the remedy to all of that, is the power of God. And we're going to unfold, I'm going to explain it in a minute. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Please turn to Ephesians 3, 14. Um, please uh, excuse me because I'm going to be asking you to be turning dif- to different passages today, so be ready for that. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Let's go ahead and read. <clears throat> for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that or that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul in 119 is praying that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power and I would argue that 319 is the reason why he is asking for the grace to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Again, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, I'm asking that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him so that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. But then from, but then, from then on, after his prayer, he goes on to unfold and explain more about the gospel of Jesus Christ in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then when he gets to his last prayer in chapter three fourteen, there's more context as to what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the greatness of his immeasurable power toward us? And he's saying, I want you to know that power so that, the last phrase in verse 19, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think that is the ultimate outcome of Paul's prayer. That's what he wants. And the reason why I believe that this is the ultimate purpose for his praying is that, since again, since the beginning of his letter, he's explained how God has reconciled both Jew and Gentile through the cross, and that both Jew and Gentile are being built into a holy temple for God to dwell in. He says that in 2.11 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, he wants the fullness of God. Listen to this. In the early hour in the Sunday school, we talked about this, how Christ fulfills the temple theme in Scripture. And Paul is, is explaining how Jesus fulfills the temple theme in Scripture as well. So what Paul is asking for when he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God is that he wants the church, which is the temple of God, to be filled, to be filled with the glory of God like the Old Testament temple in, 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 the, in the Scriptures, but in a more glorious fashion because it's not a temple, it's not a building, but it's Christ who is the temple of the living God.
So he wants them to be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit who gives wisdom and revelation in order to know the love of Christ. And by knowing the love of Christ, they would be filled with all the fullness of God. So allow me to provide support for what I just said about how Paul wants the church, which is the temple of God, to be filled with the glory of God. So turn with me to Ephesians 2, 17 to 22. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 17. So go to 2, 17 in Ephesians. Two seventeen, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And he came and preached peace to you. He, Christ. Christ came and preached peace to you who were once far off, Gentile, and peace to those who were near, Jew. For through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to Gentiles right now. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's temple language. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's also temple language. Because when they rebuilt the temple, they, they built a foundation. right? So this is temple language. And this foundation of the church, of the true temple of God, which is Jesus Christ, is built upon the teaching of the apostles and prophets in the New Testament. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The stone that the builder rejected is now the cornerstone of the temple. In whom the whole structure, which is believers, were stones in this living temple, being fitted by the cornerstone, which is Christ, and were being joined together, and were growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God by the Spirit. Those are direct references back to the Old Testament temple. And I don't want your minds to go back and stay in the Old Testament temple. We want to see the glory of Jesus Christ today in the New Testament temple. Let me unpack a little bit more what I'm saying. The reason why Paul is praying that the Ephesians would be filled with all the fullness of God is that Paul understands that the church is the temple of God where God dwells among them through the Holy Spirit. He knew that the New Covenant church is the fulfillment of the mystery of the old covenant temple, which was anointed and filled with, with the glory of God. And the reason why I'm going to argue that Paul is praying that they be filled with all the fullness of God as, as the old covenant temple was filled with the glory cloud is because of some catchphrases that he uses in Ephesians 2 and 3. And those are the ones that I just mentioned where he says, members of the household of God, of God built on the foundation the cornerstone, the structure, the holy temple, and the word dwell, dwell. That word for dwell has to do with how God dwelt in the tabernacle through the glory cloud in the Old Testament. Then in, so in chapter 3, 14 through 21, he prays that they, a holy temple dwelling for God, be filled according to the riches of his glory. The tabernacle and the temple were both filled with the glory of God. Thus, God dwelt among the assembly. So if you look here in um, 3.22, again, he says, In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, if you, look, if you have your Bibles open there, look at it. 3.16, Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that, and there's about three purpose clauses there, 
the last purpose clause, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we are being filled with all the fullness of God according to the riches of His glory, as it was in the Old Testament temple when the glory cloud filled the tabernacle. However, the new covenant church, made of Jew and Gentile, is a greater temple because we are the temple of God, the body of Christ, and He doesn't dwell in a space that we can't enter. Instead, He dwells in us by the Spirit, and we have access also into Christ with the rest of the church. And Paul wants this to become a greater reality in the church, and we should too because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Now, I want to show you some Bible references about the temple so that you can see for yourself why Paul prayed that they would be filled as the Old Covenant temple was filled, but in a greater way, because of the Old Covenant temple, pointed forward to a greater temple that we have access into by faith. Therefore, we're going to look at three references, and then we will look at how it relates to what Paul is praying in Ephesians. So please turn to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Now, as you're finding Exodus 40, I just want to insert a parenthetical note, a side note, that this tabernacle in Exodus 40 is not the first temple. If you remember in uh, Genesis, Jacob went to Haran, and he slept on a stone, and then he had a dream, he anointed the stone, and he erected the stone as a pillar, and he says, this is the house of God. These were proto-temples in the Old Testament scriptures. And the tabernacle is a further progression of revelation of the temple, which is Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how that is fulfilled in Christ in a moment. So let's read all of chapter 40. And I'm going to make notes along the way uh, as best as I can. So uh, let me give you some context. God has just rescued Israel. From Egypt, he has given, he has delivered them, redeemed them, judged their enemies through the Red Sea, brought them safely through the Red Sea on dry ground, on dry land. Now they're in the wilderness and they're about to make their pilgrimage into the land that God promised to their forefathers, which is the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And Hebrews reveals that it's not actually the land of Canaan, but it's a new heaven and new earth built by God. And so anyways, in Exodus, at this point, they have, uh, God has given them uh, the law already, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments. He's made a covenant with them at Sinai, and the mountain was holy, but now he's going to make the tabernacle holy. This is the building of the temple. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle, build the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. This is a proto-temple. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with a veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it. We're in uh, verse 4. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. This screen prevented them from entering in under certain stipulations. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. 
verse 9. Here's like the meat of it. There's a lot of stuff I highlighted and underlined here, so pay attention from, from now on. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the temple. Christ is the anointed one of God, the tabernacle of God, anointed. This is what it's pointing to. And all that is, and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and also its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its, and its stand and consecrate it. Verse 12. Then you shall bring in Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and you shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. So let me just pause there for a moment and explain what's going on here. Christ, the Holy One of God, the Anointed One of God, is a tabernacle for the the Holy Ones, the Anointed Ones of God, the children of God through faith in Him and are given access into Him by faith. And we're holy, we're inside of Him, we're priests of God, clothed with the garments of Christ, anointed by God to serve God in the true and everlasting temple of God. This is what that's pointing to. Aaron and his sons putting on these holy garments, being washed with water, cleansed, sanctified. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as a priest. Church, you are a royal priesthood in the service of God. You shall bring his sons and also put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priest, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. And this, verse 16, I know this is a long passage, but watch what he's saying. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. It was built. Moses erected the tabernacle, and he laid its bases and set up its frames. So we have a foundation, we have frames, we have pillars, and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord commanded Moses. And he took the testimony and put it into the ark, and he put the poles of the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the, te- the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, we're in verse 23 now, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite of the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. I want to make a comment here now too. God is commanding Moses, he's giving him particular instructions on how to build and erect the tabernacle. Christ is building his church. Moses foreshadowed Christ building the church according to the commandments of God, which is the gospel of God, the preaching of the word and the teaching, the, the, the teaching of the commandments of Christ. And everything that I'm glossing over at the moment is not unimportant, but there are some particular phrases that I want to pull out that directly relate to Ephesians All of it does, but there's some particular ones that I want to bring out. And he set up the burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle. So verse 29. And he put, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offerings and the grain offering. 
As the Lord had commanded Moses, he set up the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and his sons, the priests, washed their hands and their feet. Verse 32. When they went into the tent of meeting and they washed, the, they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. So, turn to Exodus 40, verse 33 now. Just jump down to verse 33. We're already there. Moses, as a type of Christ, is building the tabernacle, which was the wilderness temple before Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Let me skip down, because I think I've explained a lot of this. Verse, so, Exodus 40, verse 33. And he, that is Moses, erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen on the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work, the work of the building, uh, the work of building the wilderness temple or tabernacle. Verse 34, then, then when the temple was built, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So what's the point I'm driving at here? We have Moses, a person who foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah, who's building a temple, and after he's done building the temple, after these sacrifices are sacrifices, after the temple is anointed, after, after the work is done, the glory of the Lord comes down and fills the temple. Jesus, the greater Moses, the anointed one of God, build, is building his church now, but his work, his priestly work is done. The sacrifice has been offered, which is his body, the burnt offering of his body on the cross. And now the glory of the Lord has come down in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have access into that glory. They did not have access into that glory. If you look at verse 35, Again with me, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Beloved, we have access into the glory of God. And I wish I had words to explain how amazing that is and how lovely that is and how beautiful that is, but we have access into Christ through faith in Him and what He did on the cross. So Exodus 40, verse 36, he says this. Oh, this is uh, something, I really love this passage. And so if we go on past verse 35, where he talks about the glory of the Lord entering it. In verse 36, it says, let's just continue. Verse 36, 40, 36. Throughout all their journeys, throughout all the Israel's journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from God over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all the generations. This passage is about when the glory of the Lord guided them through the wilderness toward the promised land. 
As you know, when they got to the promised land, they sinned and were sent out into exile. But there, but there is a promise of hope after exile in, in Isaiah chapter 4. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5. You don't have to turn there, but you can listen. Isaiah 4, 5. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. This is a direct reference to Exodus in Isaiah. For all the glory, there will be a canopy. For over all the glory, there will, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth, a tabernacle for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now, as you know, there was a, something called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths in the scriptures that yeah, I believe it was, it was in Leviticus where God commanded them to keep this feast the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was to commemorate how God led them in the wilderness when they, when they followed Him, when the tabernacle was there and the glory dwelt among Israel. But there is a greater Israel, there's a greater glory that guides us today, now, and that is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But let me, before I get ahead of myself, In Exodus, they were led finally into the promised land. God gave them victory over their enemies. Eventually, they took the whole promised land when David conquered Jerusalem. But then they sinned and they were cast out. Then in Isaiah chapter 4, God gives them a promise of hope, a seed of hope. And he says, one day, there's going to be more glory to lead you through your wilderness wanderings. But the, but the, the, the interesting thing here is that God doesn't say that it's just going to dwell among you and you can't enter it. It says that, the whole, that there's going to be glory covering you as a canopy. That you will be able to enter the presence of that glory, not like in Exodus. So, okay, go to John 1.14 with me. We have to read this. We have to. John 1.14. Because it's important for you to see it in your Bible so that you can be convinced of what's going on here. John chapter 1, verse 14. A well-known passage, a a memory verse perhaps. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. Another word, that word dwelt is a catchphrase or a word that should ring a bell. Back to the tabernacle. And we we have seen His glory. The glory cloud. We have seen His glory. We, see the glory. we saw the glory in Jesus Christ. John is testifying. We saw Him. We touched Him. We walked with Him. We saw His miracles. We spoke with Him. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word dwelt there in John chapter 1.14 can be trans- literally translated as tabernacled. Tabernacled. And the word and the word dwelt is a word that refers to the temple. John 1.14 shows how Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 4, verse 5, is coming to a fulfillment. The prophecy won't be fulfilled until Christ comes again, however, and brings us into the new heaven and new earth, as we will see in chapter 21 momentarily. But we have a foretaste of it now. In Ephesians, he says that he's given us an inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee, as a down payment of future glory where we will be glorified, transformed into the same image of Jesus Christ. And that's taking place now, so don't be lazy. Oh, don't be passive about it. Look to Christ now. 
Look to Him now and be glorified now. Taste the glory now. So please turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. You have to see this. You have to. You really do. Because this is a parallel narrative with Exodus chapter 40. It's a parallel narrative with Exodus chapter 40. In the early hour in the Sunday school teaching, I was explaining the similarities between narratives in the Bible and Exodus 40 and 2 Chronicles 2 to 8 is a parallel narrative with Exodus chapter 40. It is because we have, we have a ruler figure, a leader of the people, Moses, building a tabernacle. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, I mean 2 Chronicles chapter 2 to 8, we have a ruler figure, a king, Solomon, who is building a tabernacle, a temple. And there are similarities here that happen within this narrative. Both Moses and Solomon pointing to the greater Moses and Solomon Christ building his temple. Okay, so let's read. One last word is that um, uh, we also talked about in the early hour in Sunday school how God progressively unfolds the mystery of the gospel. So we have this, first we have Jacob sleeping on a stone, erects a stone, anoints, anoints just a stone, a pillar, and says this is the house of God. Then we get to Exodus and God, and now they're building a whole elaborate tabernacle with furnishing and more details to it. Then we get to the temple where God's promise to David is being partially fulfilled, progressively fulfilled through the son of David that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 would build the temple. You remember that? He says, David, you're not going to build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. And a lot of people might stop at Solomon and say, well... The promises of God have been fulfilled. The son of David came. He built the, te- the, the, the temple. We're in the promised land. Now what? That's not the end of the story. The, the, the story ends with the son of David, Jesus Christ. That's why they said, son of David, have mercy on me. Because they realize that he is the true son of David. That's building the tabernacle, building the temple of God, which is the church. That's you. And so... Let's read this verse. We're about to only read one verse this time, though. This, and I'm, but I'm going to explain it. Verse 14. We're only going to read verse 14 in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 5. So 2 Chronicles 2, 5, 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 14. comes after Kings. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 14. Okay, so <clears throat> before we read it, let me summarize. We're about to only read one verse, verse 14. I'll summarize what is taking place before this verse. Solomon is king, and just as he finished building the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, he, that's interesting too. This temple was built on the threshing floor of Onan, I believe, which is the Mount of Moriah where uh, Isaac was going to be sacrificed, but God provided a substitute that's very significant because Christ fulfills that as well. So they've just brought the ark into the, te- into the, into the temple. Solomon has just brought the ark into the temple with all the furniture that they just built. 
They offered sacrifices just like in Exodus. They brought furniture, sacrifices, and the Ark of the Temple just like in Exodus 40. Now the priest sang, the priests, the Levitical priest sang in praise to God for his faithfulness in bringing his covenant promises from Genesis to fruition. And when they sang the house, and, and when they sang, the house, the dwelling place of God was filled with the glory. Now let's read 5.14. So that, this is a purpose clause, they sang and the, the, the glory of the Lord filled the temple so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So again in Exodus 40 and in Second Chronicles 5, they weren't able to enter the glory. They were not able to enter and minister before the Lord. This is exactly what happened with Moses. And please excuse me for repeating myself over and over again, but I want you to, I really want to drive this point home. Both Moses and Solomon and the congregation of Israel could not enter into the glory, but we can. We, Jew and Gentile, all nations from all places all over the world, according to Paul, are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit where we will dwell inside the temple where His glory is. Therefore, Paul prayed that we would be filled with all of the fullness of God as the old covenant temple was built, was, but in a more glorious fashion. And the old covenant priests couldn't minister because the glory was there, but we can. We are a royal priesthood and we offer sacrifices of worship, our lives, as holy living sacrifices, which includes prayer. Prayer is spiritual worship. It is sacrifice to God It's incense before the throne of God. Do you want to please God? Go to Him. You know, I've heard this illustration given many times, but, um, you know, if I love someone, I'm going to want to communicate with them. I love Shelby, my wife, and I want to speak to her. I want to talk to her. Um, And so if you love Jesus Christ, go to Him, speak to Him, pray to Him, and this is incense. This is a pleasing aroma before his throne. I want you all, the reason why we're, we're looking at this, hold on, let me, before I get ahead of myself. So pray. Look, and, and this is what's going to motivate you to pray. If I just say pray, just pray, just do it. That's not going to be, um, God is not going to be pleased with that kind of obedience, that dry, just I got to do it. I'm going to check off my, my, my list of, uh, my, my to-do list. I prayed today, I read my Bible, I went to church on Sunday. No. Look at the manifold wisdom of God that Paul's asking that you would understand in Ephesians. He's saying, I pray that you would... Know the manifold wisdom of God, that you'd be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would understand the mystery which I'm revealing to you. Behold the love of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Look at him. Recognize the worth of your Savior so that you would be filled with his glory and so that you would pray for one another to be filled with his glory as well.
So I want you to, we're, we're coming to a close soon. And I want you to see last, one last reference in the Old Testament. So just flip over to 2 Chronicles 7, 2 Chronicles 7. And I think that this is, um, it is very important because of the context of 2 Samuel, 2 Chronicles 7. So Solomon has just finished building the temple. Right now he's completing the temple right now. He's blessed the people and he's dedicated it at this point. So let's read 2 Chronicles 7, 1. And we'll just read a few verses. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priest could not enter the house because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Verse 3, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for a steadfast love endures forever. So I just wanted to emphasize the point that they couldn't enter. The work was done. The sacrifice had been offered. Christ, it's finished and the glory comes down. We have access to that glory. So during part one of this sermon, we looked at Ephesians 2. This is also um, very essential. I know that at this point, many of you already know that you are heirs, heirs, inheritors of the promises of God. Uh, Gentiles, we're Gentiles here, unless some of you are Jewish and I'm not aware of that. But... um, Paul's making an argument here saying, look, you Gentiles, you have access now to the covenants of promise. And I I really want to put that into context with the temple promises here. So we're going to look at another letter that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 so that we could drive home this point that you are the dwelling place of God and these covenant promises guaranteed to you in the Old Testament, all over the Old Testament, are fulfilled in Christ for you. So please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you're turning there, let me make a comment. Another reason why I'm doing this is for a few reasons. One, I want to be faithful to the text. I want to be faithful to what Paul is saying in Ephesians, period. And I also want to show you how Paul is arguing the letters that Paul wrote and all of the letters in the New Testament are not stories like Genesis, like the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts. They are letters, they are arguments, statements, propositions that Paul is making in order to argue and prove a point to the church. However, he's arguing on the basis of story, narrative. We just saw the story of in Second Chronicles Exodus chapter 40, Genesis with Jacob. And so he's taking this, the, the, the narrative of the gospel and he's proving to the Ephesians doctrine or teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 to 18. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 16 to 18. 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, here's a promise. This is a covenant promise that we're heirs of. I will make my dwelling among them. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from the midst of them, church. Leave your idols and be separate from them, says the Lord. Don't be a friend of the world. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Repentance is necessary to have friendship with God. Faith and repentance. And I will be, then I will be a father to you. I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And in Ephesians, he says that we are the children of God, adopted sons and daughters of God. This promise is for you. If you you have believed, if you have repented of your sins, this promise is for you. That God will dwell among you, walk among you, As God walked among Adam in the garden in the cool of the day, He will walk among you. In Revelation, Christ walks among the churches, among the lampstands. He walks among us right now as we're here gathered today as we worship Him in the listening to the preaching of His Word through the Spirit. But one day, we will see Him face to face. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We'll see Christ face to face. Listen, the only way you're going to make it through this life is by knowing the love of Christ. Paul said it in the Philippians, I press on for the upward call in Christ Jesus. If Christ is not your main focus, your goal, your prize that you're working for, you will, you will quit the race. You will walk away. You'll stop. You'll go back to the world. You will. So please turn in your Bibles. We're going to look at the finality or the apex of this temple theme in Scriptures. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. So Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. read until verse 4. <clears throat> so then I, then I, John speaking, John saw, then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, which is the fulfillment of the land promises in the Old Testament. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, it's gone, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard the voice, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen to this, the dwelling place of God is with, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be, will be with them as their God. So look in verse 3, where he says, The dwelling place of God 
Anytime you see that word dwell, it's referring to the tabernacle, to the temple. Christ is the temple. We're in him. God dwells with us. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be their God. This is the same covenant promise that Paul is reminding or telling the, the, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that this is their promise too. This is what it's all pointing to, to have union and communion with Christ. Verse 4, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be there, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Beloved, this, this church, this is our inheritance. We are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He will dwell among us. He'll wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Neither will there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore because the former things, that is the old creation, has passed away. Many of you, and so I want to insert, I'm going to close with a bit of application. And I really didn't want to make this about me, but I don't, and it's not about me, it's about all of us here. But I want to share with you a personal experience that maybe you all can, it will resonate with you, you all can uh, feel, you've touched it, it's palpable, tangible to you. So many of you know that I'm a public high school teacher and I've taught for almost nine years now. And I've seen students who have suffered from sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, students who have disabilities, permanent physical, mental disabilities due to prenatal drug exposure. Sin, the result of students living in a broken... So I've also seen the result of students living in broken homes due to divorce. Students who have died because of gang violence. One of my students was shot. A, couple, a few of my students were shot and, and murdered. They were murdered. And uh, there is sin. So my point is this. There is sin in the world. There's evil that exists in the heart of man, and that's why we see all the stuff that we see. And many of you have experienced the same thing that I just shared about my students. You have been touched by that, by divorce, by drug abuse, by emotional abuse, physical abuse, and the such, and the like, murder even. People that you know have been murdered, perhaps. Sin has touched every area of our lives. And the suffering that I just described isn't particular just to high school students. As I've said, it relates to all of us. And even just yesterday, we mourned the deaths of about 3,000 people due to the September 11th terrorist attacks. Due to sin, this is, sin is in the heart of man. Beloved, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you though, that we have a hope laid up for us in heaven where we will see God face to face. We will see Christ and His glory one day and He will wipe away every tear. 
Every tear, every wrong will be made right. The creation, the fallen creation will be restored to what it was meant to be. We will be made in the image of God, truly, through Jesus Christ. We'll have union and peace with God forever, eternal joy. And some of you sitting here today might not know Christ. You might not know Christ. And I want to encourage you, I want, to sh- I want you to see the glory, see the love of Christ so that you'd come to Him. He will deliver you from sin. He will deliver you from sin. He will wipe away every tear one day and give you joy even now though. So although we don't see Him face to face today, God dwells in you now if you're saved. He walks among His people now. He has left us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance of what I just said, what I just relayed to you in, Re- in Revelation chapter 21. Therefore, be filled with all the fullness of God. Look to Christ. Pray for one another. Pray for yourself that you would be strengthened with power in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Pray for the immeasurable greatness of His power which comes through the Spirit so you would have strength to comprehend the love of Christ so that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Look to Jesus. Discover the wondrous hidden... And I, say, I don't say that like... I say that very seriously and reverently. Look to Jesus to discover the wondrous hidden wisdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to go back into Ephesians. Look at the way Paul prayed as a model prayer and pray for one another but also look to the gospel that's been laid out in Ephesians for you so that you would be filled with zeal and passion. Beloved, people go to the mission field not out of duty. Yes, out of duty. We've been commanded to do it. But they go to the mission field. They abandon everything. Why? Because of the love of Christ. I want you to know the love of Christ. That's why they go. And I want you to know the love of Christ too. It's the love of Christ that compels us and will even send people to die as martyrs. And so if we're going to finish this race well, if we're going to fulfill, if we're going to uh, be, if we're going to carry out God's will for our, for our lives, we must look to Jesus. So let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would Please make this a reality in our lives. And you've given us promises, Lord. We're heirs of the covenants of promise. Therefore, we could take any promise. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. In the dwelling place of God. In the true temple, Jesus. They are yes and amen. And we can come before you. Stand in your glory. At your altar. Offer up incense of prayer and say, Lord, please be strengthen my church family, to be strengthened with all the fullness of God, strengthened with power so that they would be able to, strengthen with power to comprehend the love of Christ, so that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Help us to do that, Lord. You said, Christ, you said, if you ask anything in my name, that you'll do it. We ask that you would give us the Spirit. Give us the Spirit now. Sanctify us completely for Christ Jesus, for his sake, for your sake. In Christ's name, amen.